0: Have you guys seen what's going around on Facebook? Some of our members are responsible for it. But it talks about preaching on Super Bowl Sunday. And the suggestion is that if the pastor makes a good sermon point, somebody should pour Gatorade on him. So I came prepared. I don't see any Gatorade, so I guess I'll I'll take a chance. But uh, uh, anyway, I compliment you on starting Super Bowl Sunday in worship. I think that really honors God. I appreciate you being here. I uh, was looking through my photo files, trying to find an image that I thought might go well with the introduction to the message this morning. I'm going to be talking about being on a journey, a sea journey on a ship. And I found one that I thought was appropriate. Because it's kind of blue and orange, okay. you know, God's sunsets, uh, Broncos colors are divinely arranged. Well, I was on the, uh, on the ship at a different time of year on a journey, uh, and it was a wild ride. Not because of the high seas that we often encountered in southeast Alaska that time of year, but because of the rambunctious youth that were bouncing around that Alaska Marine Highway Ferry. There were kids on that ferry just running all over the place. My missionary friend and I were on a trip from Ketchikan over to Prince of Wales Island. Prince of Wales is an island uh, slightly larger than the state of Delaware, and we were on the way to visit the churches on the island and invite them and do some promotion work to the Bible camp where I was the new director. It just so happens that there had been a basketball tournament in Ketchikan, and all the island schools had sent teams and fans over to the tournament. They were on the way home. They weren't very well supervised, kids running around all over the place bothering everybody. Many of the adults were complaining. But when I think back about that trip, my missionary friend and I, didn't even notice the kids, because we were engaged in telling stories. My friend had been a missionary in southeast Alaska for many, many years, had some rich experiences to relate, and although I was new to the ministry, I'd been involved in forestry work there, I had a few stories to contribute as well, and we would finish a story, go get another cup of coffee, and start off on another one. Some were humorous, some were serious. I'm sure we embellish some of them a little bit. You know how that goes. But at one point, we're halfway through a story, and he looks up at me with a big grin on his face. And he says, Woe to the Christian who has no story to tell of their spiritual journey. And I've thought of that statement so many times in years hence because it's true some, so many Christians don't live their life as though there's anything exciting to tell. What's the big deal? No real story. In reality, every born-again believer has a story to tell about their their relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, people can argue about the finer points of your theology. They can challenge your doctrine, but how can they argue with your story? The signature theme of SFC that we're looking at today. This is the last in our series of six signature themes. It's one of my favorites. I asked to be able to speak on this one. And it reads this way, helping people on their spiritual journey by realizing that everyone has a unique story as well as a place in God's master story. The exciting part of this is that your story is just a cog in a bigger wheel. God's master plan. What an exciting journey that can be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now as we come to this part of our worship this morning where we open the word together and where we can realize that each and every one of us has a story. And maybe some haven't started that story yet. Maybe they haven't crossed that line of faith. But you, even now, you're preparing them for that. And so we pray that you would speak to us this morning and we just dedicate this time in the Word to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you turn with me to Acts chapter 1, actually, we've looked at this passage briefly a couple of times in this series. Ryan spoke on uh, Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2 back on January 10th. Jimmy mentioned it in one of his messages. Today, I want to go back and focus on the first nine verses. It's an exciting account of how the Christian journey began. It records the last words of Jesus on earth to his apostles with a charge to start the journey, to tell the story, to be my witnesses. Now remember the setting. Acts was written by Dr. Luke, the physician. He's already written one account, the Gospel of Luke, where he relates the life and teachings of our Lord And now, in his typical, well-researched, detailed style, he writes to his friend Theophilus about the start of the church age and the acts of the apostles. It records the last words of Jesus on earth to his apostles with a charge to start the journey, to tell their story. The timeline is that Jesus has resurrected, spent 40 days with these apostles, teaching them about the kingdom, before he left them, before he returned to his heavenly home. Let's read. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. I I like that word, began. The story isn't over. Jesus started it. Now it's up to you to carry it on. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. I think the book of Acts illustrates SFC's signature theme very well. It's basically the story and the journey of the apostles. Two in particular stand out. The apostle Peter and then Paul. Peter and his, you know, Peter's been restored to ministry after his failure, after he denied Christ. He had a very effective ministry mostly to the Jews. And then later in the book of Acts, it's the journeys and story of Paul, who had uh, effective ministry mostly to the Gentiles. Your Bible probably has some headings in it called the journeys of Paul, the first missionary journey, the second missionary journey, the third missionary journey. And three times in the book of Acts, Paul relates his conversion story on the Damascus Road. The Jewish leaders are going to challenge Paul's theology. It's a threat to them. But how can they challenge his story? Acts 1 kind of sets the stage for all this. I'd like to look at four main points this morning in these nine verses that we've read. And and the first one I call a pre-salvation preparation. Or maybe beyond that, maybe you've been saved, but you... You just really haven't figured out your calling yet. Christian life hasn't really taken off with you. But God's still preparing you for something later on. I mentioned much of Acts being about Paul's ministry, his journey. His early days before the Damascus Road experience were an adventure in education and training that God would use in his later ministry He was an upper-class citizen, ties to Rome. To use his words, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He had great knowledge of the Old Testament. He would have participated in all the Jewish traditions, the rites of passage, the education that any Jewish lad would go through. He would have been, he he was trained in a secular job. In his case, a tent maker. This would serve him well later on, to help finance his ministry adventures. All this education, all this training, led Paul to be a very, very zealous Pharisee. Christianity was a threat, and he was determined to wipe it out. And when the Christians he was persecuting escaped Jerusalem to head for Damascus, he followed them. And if you had told Paul, when he started to Damascus, that he would soon be a convert to this new Christian movement, I'm sure he would have ridiculed you. But Paul was not counting on the sovereign grace of God. And when Paul was saved, his background would serve him well, especially in his ministry to the Gentiles. I look at my own life and I see how God prepared me for later ministry when I didn't even know he was doing it. Growing up my father had instilled in me a great love of the North Country. His father had come from, immigrated from Sweden to northern Minnesota. My dad used to take me on fishing trips up to Canada, northern Minnesota. Later on, I started a career with the U.S. Forest Service, and guess where I was stationed? In the northern latitudes. Spent many years in northern Minnesota, some of the same areas where my dad had taken me fishing. Later on, I was transferred to Alaska. All of this, I now realize, was preparation for ministry in the far north. I didn't realize at the time how my wife's training and vocation in food service management would later serve us well in ministry, both as a food service director at a Bible camp and in hospitality ministry wherever we went. And I think the apostles... They've been preparing with Jesus for over three years. At this time, they're a little unsure about where their journey is going to take them. Their master's just left them. And that brings me to the second point, second bullet in your bulletin. With salvation, a new journey begins. The journey in Acts starts off with uh, words about uh, the, the apostles whom Jesus chose, those he had chosen. It's a direct reference to the apostles, but it's not just the apostles he chose. It's the same Greek word that Paul used in Ephesians 1, 4 that says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It's the same word Jesus used in John 15:16 when he said, you did not choose me, I chose you. And I don't know about you, but I'm always humbled when I think about being chosen by God for salvation. Why did he choose me? I don't understand it, but I know that we have a response to that. We should have a response to that, one of gratitude, one of thankfulness, one of worship. And one of the ways we express that is by being his witness, by telling our story. We noticed that before Jesus left, he was teaching those he chose about the kingdom. I suspect Luke gives us this information because of what's going to happen in a couple of verses, a question they're going to ask Jesus. The disciples, no doubt, had some many confused ideas about the kingdom. For one thing, I'm sure they're thinking about a Messianic earthly kingdom. They've been looking for one for centuries. Jesus, no doubt, speaking about the kingdom of God that is within them. And so he tells them some things that are going to be happening to them about receiving the Holy Spirit in just a few days. The third point, and an interesting point, it's tied around the question that they're going to ask him. You're not always going to get your questions about your journey and your story answered. They pose a question to him. It's a very important question. Verse 6, Lord, at this time, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel. A couple of things about that question. I, I think if I had been there, I would have asked that question. It's a timing question. And aren't we concerned about timetables? We want to know. When is this going to happen? When is that going to happen? What's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to our children? When are you returning? I mean, you turn on Christian TV and you'll see everybody trying to predict the return of Christ. We just want to know. Well, what are they really asking here? When are you restoring the kingdom to Israel? You know what? They are Israel. They're Jews, chosen by Christ to be his apostles, to start the new church movement. They represent Israel. They've just seen Jesus overcome death. He is resurrected. He's defeated sin. But at this time... He's not defeated Rome. Pontius Pilate, Caiaphas, they're still in power. What did Jesus defeat? Where's the kingdom? There's been no one from the line of David on the throne in Israel since 586 B.C. We see you having been victorious over death. But what they're really asking in this time-related question is, what's going to happen to us? We want to know. Can you identify with that? Did you ever notice? Sometimes Jesus does not answer questions directly. I remember a time back in John chapter 21. Jesus was having a discussion with Peter. Actually, he's prophesying about how Peter's going to die. Peter sees John walk by. He says, what's going to happen to him? And Jesus said, what is that to you? You follow me. Rather blunt, it's not for you to know. There's an applicable quote, I think, in one of C.S. Lewis's books. I put this in the buzz this week. Maybe you saw it. It's one of the Chronicles of Narnia series. I think it's the horse and his boy. And there's a scene where the main character, the boy Shasta, finally meets the great lion king, Aslan. And if you remember in the Chronicles, Aslan is a lion king that represents the Christ-like figure. And Shasta's concerned about his wounded friend, a girl named Erebus. And he says, then it was you who wounded Erebus? It was I. But what for? Child, said the voice, I'm telling you your own story, not hers. I tell no one any story. But his own. Later on, Erebus meets Aslan herself. Same kind of conversation ensues. He tells her why he injured her. She needed to know about the persecution that others were enduring. And so she has a reply about her stepmother whom she had injured. And she says, will any more harm come to her by what I did? Child, said the lion, I am telling your story not hers. No one has told any story but their own. Guess what? There are some things we're not going to be told about God's timing and God's plans. Jesus' return is one of them. And if you think you have your life story and your journey all figured out, think again. Jesus is pretty blunt in his response. It's not for you to know the time or the seasons. Sorry, guys. The Father has set this by his authority. It's up to him. But now here's the exciting part. Jesus doesn't leave it there. The fourth point. Here's what you do need to know. I'm not going to tell you all these things answer to all these questions you have but there are some things you do need to know and then he gives them the purpose for the book of Acts and the purpose for their journey. Verse 8 but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now you need to remember here Church movements just getting started. This is the initial phases. The New Testament scriptures aren't even codified yet, so God's doing some very unusual things in the first part of Book of Acts to authenticate His work, signs and wonders. And for some reason, when these new people groups came on, when the Jews came on, when the Samaritans came on, when the Gentiles came on, they didn't always receive the power of the Holy Spirit immediately like we do now. They had to wait for a few days, and eh, we don't like to wait. Now you get that power when you accept Christ. But do you realize what's implied in verse 8? We are going to be given power to go turn the world upside down. That's the phrase. I like that phrase because in Acts 17, that's what the Jews accused Paul of doing, he and his followers. These Christians are turning the world upside down. It's SFC's role to help you go turn the world upside down. This should be an exciting journey. Whoever said that our role is just to arrive in heaven safely, we're supposed to make a difference on this journey and this story. What journey, what story will unfold? One time I came down from Alaska to a camping conference down here. Actually, it was in Colorado. It was in Colorado Springs at the Broadmoor Christian Camping Convention. And I was in a breakout session where a a well-known youth leader was speaking to us, a man named Mike Iaconelli. Some of you may know of him. And Mike was standing out in the office, or in the audience, and he, he was telling us about how we need to motivate our youth to go turn the world upside down. And he said, if God were to strike me with a heart attack right now, I just prayed that he would give me enough energy to climb back up on the stage, grab a microphone, and say, what a ride. What a ride. Turning the world upside down. I suspect the apostles had a response to Jesus when he told them this. I'm I'm trying to think what I would say if I were in their shoes, and I, I think I would have said something like this. Jesus, you misunderstood the question. We're asking about the kingdom. You're to rule. We're to help you. We're to be over the twelve tribes. You know, what's this about going to Samaria? What's this about going to the end of the earth? What does it mean to be my witnesses? Well what it means was that they were going to testify of, of the life and teachings of our resurrected Lord, what they had witnessed. And that's often going to involve telling their own story on their own journey. And how that Is part of God's master story. At the risk of getting personal, I think I can best illustrate Jesus' words to the apostles about being his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth by sharing with you a little of our own story, the story of my wife and I and my family. Maybe this will bring the application home to you a little bit so you can see how your story, your journey relates. Your story is going to be different. Let's start with Jerusalem. I shared that the Lord had been preparing me for ministry in the north by the background of my father, how my secular background had taken me to northern regions of our country, My wife and I have always tried to be faithful to our church, our local church and its ministry, wherever we had been stationed. We found ourselves in leadership positions, a number of churches in four different states, well, five now. Looking back, I, I consider this to be our Jerusalem. We were involved locally. Like here, we're involved in northeast Denver, Park Hill, north Aurora. You know, there's plenty to do for Christ. Within a few miles of Hangar 61. In the 80s, we were transferred to Juneau, Alaska with the Forest Service. And you know, I love my job there. I had a great position working in the regional office for the Forest Service. And my wife, Juanita, loved her food service job she had there. Uh, we were active in our local Bible church. And then one day, a missionary same guy I was on the ferry with, came to me. And he w- he was a missionary who was a director at a Bible camp run by a mission organization 40 miles north of Juneau. During the wintertime when the camp was closed, he came in and attended our church. We got to be very good friends with him. Got to know him very well. We volunteered quite a bit at the camp. And he came to me with these words. He said, you know, my wife's a food service director at the camp. We're retiring in two years. We've been watching you and your wife, and you work in the church, you work in the camp, in the community. We think the Lord brought you here to take our place. Then he said it this way. He didn't say, I want you to pray about this. I want you to think about it. He said, now, when can you leave the government, get missionary training, and take over for me? That's just the way he said it. Well, you know what? I turned him down. I said, well, I'm extremely honored. I can't believe that you would entrust us with this service. I just I can't believe that. But and actually, my wife and I had talked about maybe doing some missionary service after I retired, but I wasn't retirement eligible. And I had two kids going to college, and I had a big mortgage, and my wife had a good job, and you know the story. I said, it's just not good stewardship for us at this time to leave my job. And uh, uh, I, think, I think he was expecting that answer because he says, oh, you don't have to give me an answer today. I'm still praying. Well, we didn't tell anybody about it. He didn't either. Two months later, the man in charge of the whole Forest Service operation for the state of Alaska, the regional forester, called us all into a big meeting in the federal building He had just come back from Washington, D.C., and he said, I have some bad news. He said, our funding is drying up. We're going to have to go through a major downsizing effort. I've made the decision to reduce the workforce in Juneau by 25%. He said, don't worry, we'll try to take care of all of you. We'll transfer you to other parts of the country. And then as an afterthought, he just kind of made this comment. Uh, he said we 're going to accomplish this by consolidating apartments and eliminating some departments. And I looked at the list and my department was scheduled to go. But he said don't worry we'll trans- transfer you all away. But then he said, "Oh, by the way, if you have twenty five years in in two years, you're eligible for early retirement. Well, i didn't take much math to figure out i'd have twenty five years in in two years." So, I left the agency six years before I normally would have been retirement age. I took my annual leave and went to missionary training in Kansas City. I enrolled in Moody Bible Institute to get some more coursework done. And my wife and I became directors of Echo Ranch Bible Camp near Juneau, Alaska. We were serving youth and Christian retreat groups from all over Southeast. Our ministry had now expanded beyond our Jerusalem, which was a Juneau area. We're now bringing campers from all over the Panhandle. We were training counsel- counselors from all over the United States. I call it our Judea. And I call it that because uh, some of my staff, we sent to other towns during the wintertime when camp was closed to help with youth ministry. Some of them are 300 miles away. We were bringing in work teams Counselors from all over the United States. We're beyond Jerusalem, but we were still a domestic ministry. My wife and I moved up to the, the next town up the fjord uh, to uh, Haynes, Alaska, during the winter time to help with a church plant there. Our, our mission had started a church up in Haynes, and so indeed we're kind of in Judea now. Can you see how your journey? your story has affected people beyond northeast Denver? I bet you can. Now, about this Samaria. Samaritans were detested by the Jews. Orthodox Jews hated Samaritans. They hated going through Samaria. Matter of fact, they'd walk around it to get from one place to another in Palestine if they could. When Jesus said I have to take my disciples through Samaria. He didn't mean geographically he had to do that. He needed to do that to stretch their comfort zones, to get them in a place where they didn't want to be. I mean, look what he did there. He's talking to a theology with a woman at the well. You don't talk to women about theology in those days. An immoral woman? The disciples probably wanted to get out of there as fast as they could. And that's what Samaria has become to me. It's a place where I feel out of place. Where things don't go the way I want them to. A place where there's trouble. But I've learned that on your journey, as part of your story, God will take you through Samaria. I guess you could say 1999 2000 was a Samaritan Experience for us. I mean, it started off great. We were building at camp. I had work teams from all over. We had a, two dozen great counselors that come from all over the United States. Our daughter was graduating from the University of Montana. Our son, who was also at that school, he had gotten out of the uh, army. He was a paratrooper with the 82nd Airborne. He'd gotten out to uh, go to school on a military scholarship at the same place. He had one more semester left. But the year before, he had met a beautiful Montana girl, sweet girl, they got married that spring in '99. We went to Montana one week to a graduation, the second week to a church wedding, and two and a half months later, we went back to that same church for a funeral. Our 25 year old son and our new 22 year old daughter in law were tragically killed in an airplane crash. As right after they had flown out of a remote airstrip at camp. That's just not the way it's supposed to be. Your kids are not supposed to die before you do. A young couple, just beginning their journey, what a great career they had ahead of them. And that's not the end of the Samaritan experience. We returned that winter up to Haines, where we were helping with the church. The pastor there had become my best friend. He was my age. We were kindred spirits. We did a lot with them. I appreciated his wisdom. I had him on my camp advisory council. I helped him in his ministry. He taught me a lot about giving messages and and helping in ministry, and I filled in for him when he had to be away. And that next spring, he contracted an infectious disease, that took his life in three weeks. We had taken his kids to camp while they met medevaced him to Juneau and then eventually to Seattle trying to save his life. I remember having to tell his three kids at camp that their father had died. Have you ever had one of those experiences like that where you're saying, God, what are you, why are you taking me through this? What are you trying to teach me? I don't understand. A few weeks after the death of the pastor, the elders of the church there called me. And they said, we think the Lord brought you and your wife to us for a reason. You and the pastor were good friends. You were on the same page doctrinally. You know our community. You know our church. We think he would have wanted you to continue what he started. Would you be our pastor? When I went to the Bible camp, I had actually made the statement, I'm comfortable in this position. It's an administrative position. One thing I would never want to do is be a pastor. For one thing, I don't have the training for it. But you know, when you have this, these kind of tragedies, it changes your perspective. I accepted that call. I became the pastor of Port Chilkoop Bible Church and served there for eight years. And you know our little church supported missionaries as far away as South America and Africa, interior Alaska, the end of the earth. We started in Jerusalem, then Judea. We went through Samaria and now supported work to the end of the earth. Now, Winnie and I serve in northeast Denver as volunteers. But you know, I was recently asked to be on the mission board of an Alaska ministry called Arctic Barnabas Ministries. It's an aviation support ministry. We support pastors and missionaries in the Alaska bush, off the road system, mostly to Athabascan and Eskimo communities. It's a ministry that I really have a heart for. I guess I have to get out of Jerusalem even now. And uh, by the way, just a sideline, I just got a phone call last night from Arctic Barnabas, a pilot friend of mine is going to be here at the second service today, just passing through. So, boy, does he have some stories to tell. Why do I tell you all these details? You know, your journey may not take you to the Arctic, or to the end of the earth, but you have a story. Remember my missionary friend? Woe to the Christian who has no story to tell. And we who are involved in leadership here at SFC consider it one of our signature themes. And you're going to hear it a lot. Help people on their spiritual journey. Realize that your story is part of God's master plan. We not only help people get to that first step, of the journey accepting christ we want to help you identify the gifts that god has given you to facilitate your journey we're here to help you get through your samarias